Take your Bible, please, and turn to the book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings, chapter 1 is where we'll start. We're in a series of messages summarizing the books of the Bible, book by book, in order to give a, the landscape view, if you will, of uh, the Scriptures, getting the big picture of each of these books. And today we summarize 1 Kings. And here's the key concept for this morning. Obedience brings blessing. Obedience brings blessing. When First and Second Kings were originally written, they were written as one book in the Hebrew Bible. It was called uh, the Kingdoms of Israel. It was written as a sequel to the monarchy history that was started in Samuel. But if you think when you come to Kings, you're reading a simple history, you'd be vastly mistaken. Because the book of Kings has an agenda. There is a thesis here. And the agenda is this. The welfare of the nation and the welfare of the kings depends on the king's obedience to God. And the obedience to the covenant. The author of Kings wants you to know that it's all about covenant keeping. It's all about obeying God. And so the way he tells the history is different from the way a, a human historian would tell it. For instance, the King Omri. You don't really hear much about Omri. He gets a whopping seven verses in the book of 1 Kings and then he dies. But Omri was a vastly important king. He had a, a huge impact on the region during his reign. He established a powerful dynasty, was active in trade, and we know from secular history, when we dig up the Assyrian ancient writings, they call the follow-on kings all sons of Omri. Omri was an international superstar, but he doesn't get much play in the book of Kings, because here we are reading God's view of history. And what matters is not human accomplishment, what matters is obedience. And so, we come to 1 Kings. Kings can be outlined in, in two, two sections. The first section has to do with the United Kingdom under Solomon. But the second half of the book will tell the story of the nation of Israel breaking up into two separate nations in a civil war. But first we start with, with the, the kingdom of Solomon. And as 1 as, uh, Kings opens up, in chapter 1 we have drama. We have family drama in the family of David. When 1 Kings begins, chapter 1, David is an elderly man. And in his mind, he has envisioned Solomon as the next king taking over after him. However, when you have many wives, you have many sons. And when you are the king and you have many sons, you have many rivals for the throne. And so while David is elderly and sick and in his sickbed, one of his other sons, Adonijah, makes a run for the throne. And he actually gets a bit of a following. People start to come after him. They're feasting and celebrating him being the next king and so forth. And David hears about it. And from his sickbed, David arranges a coronation for Solomon instead to be king. And so over in verse 34, we read David's words. He says, blow the trumpet and shout, long live King Solomon. And then you are to go with him and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler over Israel and Judah. And the followers of Adonijah hear that David has crowned Solomon king, not Adonijah, and literally they abandon him at his banquet table and run to their homes. It's kind of like a long live the king. 
down with the king kind of moment, right? And so Adonijah is left in the lurch. Solomon now takes over. And David uh, declares Solomon the king. And in the dedication, he says this. Go to chapter 2, verse 2. This, this is David's words as he uh, uh, makes Solomon king. Here he says, I'm about to go the way of all earth. So be strong and show yourself a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses so that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you go. The issue is keeping the covenant. And Solomon rises to the throne. And we can sum up Solomon's life as the third king of Israel with four words. Wisdom, wealth, achievement, but lastly, apostasy. The first word is wisdom. In chapter 3, as Solomon is beginning his rule, God comes to Solomon in a dream. And in that dream, God asks Solomon, make a request of me. A request anything you want that will help you to govern my people, and I will give it to you. And Solomon makes that request. In chapter 3, verse 9, we hear what he asks for. He says to God, So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Solomon asks for wisdom. He asks for the ability to see all sides of the issues and the patience to sort things out so that he can decide how to rule God's people in a way that would be in keeping with the will of God. And this request pleases God. And Solomon gains wisdom as a supernatural gift from God. This is the guy who writes the words in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Solomon rests his kingdom on reverence and wisdom. Those are the foundations for his rule. He might have asked for wealth. He might have asked for military power or an expansion of his borders. But if he didn't have reverence and wisdom, all of those blessings would have been wasted. But with wisdom and reverence as foundation for his kingdom, he gains those things. And so the next word that summarizes Solomon's rule is wealth. In chapter 4, we see the listing of the land holdings of Solomon's kingdom. And what we find out is that Solomon's kingdom is much larger than the Israel of today. And all throughout those borders, those borders as they were stretched out, they contained city-states. And all of those cities paid tribute to Solomon, taxes and revenue. And Solomon is a man of great wealth and great wealth in his kingdom. And that wealth leads to achievement specifically the achievement of the building of the temple. In chapter 5, the preparations for the building of the temple are recorded. In verse 4, Solomon makes this declaration. Chapter 5, verse 4, he says, But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is no adversary or disaster. I intend, therefore, to build a temple for the name of my Lord, my God, as the Lord told my father David, when he said, Your son, whom I put on the throne in your place, will build the temple for my name. You remember, David wanted to build the temple. David sought the chance to build the temple, but because he was a man of war, he was denied that opportunity. But he was promised that his son would have that chance. And Solomon now is in a time of peace. 
He, he doesn't rule during a time of war. Solomon, you might say, has launched a charm offensive to all of his neighbors, all the kingdoms around him. His reputation for wisdom was so great that people wanted to be on his side. They, they wanted to align with him, and so he enjoys peace. And during times of peace, you can do peacetime activities, like building the temple for the Lord. And that's what he does. The temple is a symbol of the permanent nearness of God to his people. And the building of the temple was a religious high point for the nation. Not only does he build a temple, but he builds palaces, and he, and he has a lot of construction projects that get underway. And we read about the, the building of the temple in chapter 6. And we notice in chapter 6 that out of reverence for the Lord, the temple was built unlike any other building. Solomon's temple was built without the sounds of construction at the construction site. He mandated that the, the, the big, large slabs of rock that would make up the temple were actually quarried and sized at the quarry and transported to the building site and just slipped into place so that the temple kind of magically, it would seem, arose out of the ground without the sounds of construction. It must have been an eerie sight to see this building go up. And then in the chapters that follow, chapter 6, we read the descriptions of the ornate and fabulous interior of the temple. Cedar-covered walls coated in solid gold. You are impressed as you read with the cost of the temple, and you're meant to be. You need to understand that the building of the temple plus Solomon's other building projects cost a fantastic amount of money. And that issue comes back later on in the book. These construction projects cost big bucks. And finally, the opening day comes. You go to chapter 8, opening day of the new temple. They're dedicating the temple in a great ceremony. They bring in the Ark of the Covenant uh, out of the tent of meeting where it had been all these years into the Holy of Holies. And we pick up the reading in chapter 8, verse 10. And it says, When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. All the priests could not perform their, their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. In other words, God manifested his presence in such a way that the priests and the people, they have to get out of the temple. It is evacuated and they move the dedication service to the courtyard around the temple. And there in the courtyard, Solomon, uh, in the, for the next few verses, gives a speech and makes a prayer. And by the time we get to chapter, chapter 8, verse 61, he's winding up his comments, his speech on the dedication of the temple. And in verse 61, he says this, but your hearts must be fully committed to the Lord your, our God to live by his decrees and obey his commands as at this time. In other words, Solomon realizes right now we're experiencing a high point moment. Right now it's kind of like a mountaintop spiritually. The temple is being dedicated. God's presence has been manifested in the, in the Shekinah glory, filling up the temple. And I mean, man, this is a moment like none others. But, but, and we are fully committed to our God. But we can't let this slip. We can't kind of pull away from this. We have to keep our commitment in place just like we are now as time goes forward. That's what he calls the people to. But the king himself will forget those words. For he will be the one led astray. Because we come to the fourth word that summarizes Solomon's life. And the word is apostasy. Solomon asked God for wisdom to govern the people. But he should have applied wisdom to govern himself. Because there is an area in which this king is very unwise. 
and that is the taking of many wives. If you turn to chapter 11, verse 1, this is how it's recorded. It says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, Hittites, they were from the nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. And immorality corrupted Solomon's kingdom from within. Now, before we go any further, let's, let's talk a little bit about polygamy. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. So we have to question, what does the Bible actually teach about marriage? And the Bible always, when it teaches about marriage, teaches monogamy. One man and one woman. That is the only thing that God calls marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, Each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. But when we see so much polygamy in the Old Testament, the taking of many wives, sometimes we're tempted to ask, well, I wonder if it was okay for them back then. No, it wasn't. It was never okay. It was always sinful, every time. See, here's what you need to know about the Bible. The Bible does not support everything the Bible reports. Okay? You need to understand that because your friends will come to you and say, well, look, it's right here in the Bible. See, it must be okay. No, no. It doesn't support everything it reports. There's a lot of sin reported in the Bible, and this is some of it right here. Solomon taking many wives. And so Solomon takes these wives out of his own immorality, and it pulls his affection away from Jehovah to other gods. And so if you go to chapter 11, verse 7, here's a tragedy. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Solomon didn't seem to mind very much, kind of blending in a little paganism, but God did mind. What is the hill? east of Jerusalem. I have a picture of it. I want to show you. Temple Mount is the, that, that section of Jerusalem. Look directly east. The hill is the Mount of Olives. There will come a time that on the Mount of Olives there's planted a garden called the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Garden of Gethsemane will be the place that Jesus traditionally used as his prayer retreat location. In other words, God in heaven looks down and he sees Solomon building pagan shrines in the exact place where he will one day see his son kneel in prayer. And God minds. And for the rest of his life, we don't read about achievement, but we read rather about tension and rivalry and enemies. And at the end of chapter 11, Solomon is dead. And his son comes to the throne in chapter 12. His son's name is Rehoboam. And in chapter 12, verse 1, we read of Rehoboam. It says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all the Israelites had gone there to make him king. He has his inauguration or his coronation in Shechem. He's probably already had one in Jerusalem in the official uh, palace and so forth. But, but then he goes to Shechem. Shechem is a historically significant place. Shechem is the location where Abraham was when God promised that you will be a great nation and you will inherit this land. It was in Shechem. It has historical connections. But more than that, Shechem is in the north. 
And there's tension between the north and south. And the reason there's tension between the north and south, remember, is because of the costs of the building projects of Solomon. The temple cost big bucks. Where do you get these big bucks? You tax people. And where did the taxes come from? Where most of the people lived. And most of them lived in the north. And so the northern people were, were tired of all of their taxes flowing south. It happened, all, it happened in David's day. It happened, happened even more in Solomon's day. And now Rehoboam comes north, has his coronation there, and he's symbolically saying to the people, I'm not just the king of the south, I'm your king as well. But the people say, well, since the king has come to us, maybe he will listen to us. And so in verse 4, here's what they ask. Chapter 12, verse 4. Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put us on, and we will serve you. Not only was it taxes that, that uh, Solomon had from the north, that he also enlisted work parties to do the building and to do the harvesting of the trees and all the things that they needed. And the northern people were tired of it because the south was getting all the blessing. So all they're asking for is relief, asking for tax relief. Now, Rehoboam goes to the advisors, the older advisors, who were the advisors to Solomon, and they say this, listen, give them a break, because if you give them a break, they will be forever on your side. But Rehoboam also goes to his friends, the young men that he grew up with in the palace, and the young men say to Rehoboam, don't be a wimp. Don't let them roll over you. You need to show them who's boss. And so here is Rehoboam's answer in verse 13. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. Bad move. Because there was a man in the government of Solomon called Jeroboam. He was one of the officials in, in, Solomon's, uh, in Solomon's rule, but Jeroboam was from the north. And Jeroboam is at the meeting. And Jeroboam takes that moment to step up and lead a rebellion. So ten of the tribes of Israel form a new country. And Rehoboam is left to be king of only two tribes, Judah and Benjamin in the south. And from this moment forward, Israel is never a united nation. They divide here. In the south, in the north, they retain the name Israel. But in the south, they, they, they use the, na the name Judah. And, Rehah, and Jeroboam is the new king of the new nation called Israel in the north. But Jeroboam has a heart that is far from God. He's a calculating, uh, evil man. And Jeroboam figures out that he's got to do something to keep his people from going down to Jerusalem to worship. And so this is what he comes up with in verse 27 of chapter 12. He says, If these people go to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will, they will again give their allegiance to the Lord Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. In the southernmost and in the northernmost areas of his kingdom, he sets up two new shrines. And he, in a sense, invents a new religion. 
And he worded it in such a way that those who were the worshipers of Jehovah could go to these shrines and imagine the, the, the uh, golden calf to be the pedestal only upon which the invisible God Jehovah uh, was, was hovering. And so they could go to these shrines and say, well, I'm worshiping Jehovah in my heart. I just happen to do it here because it's easier. It's much more convenient than going all the way down to Jerusalem. Okay, so why should I spend all that time away from the farm? Why should I incur the dangers of that travel? I'll just come here and worship Jehovah instead. But by fashioning it as a golden calf, he appeals to the Canaanite pagans around him in a form that they worship as well. And so what Jeroboam does is he begins to bring together false and true and to mix them together into a brand new heretical religion. And over time, it gets worse and worse and worse away from worshiping the one true God. And Jeroboam's sin is repeated by every single king in the north. In fact, the wording usually is something along the lines of he, would, he did evil and walked in the ways of Jeroboam. Because his new religion was a religion that would peacefully coexist with everybody. We'll just kind of blend all of our thoughts and let everybody be right. And that false religion angered the heart of God. And so there is a prophet who is elderly at this time, but in chapter 14, verse 15, he stands and he makes a prophecy. This same prophet, years before, had prophesied that Jeroboam would lead a rebellion in the north, and now he sees it coming true, and now in chapter 14, verse 15, he speaks to Jeroboam. He says, the Lord will strike Israel so that it will be like a reed swaying in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land that he gave to their forefathers and scatter them beyond the river because they provoked the Lord to anger by making Asherah poles. That was a symbol of the pagan religion of the day. And a little over 200 years later, the north is conquered, enslaved and deported by Assyria because of the sins started right here by Jeroboam as he led the rebellion. And now for the rest of the book, basically what you have is an alternating report of what the king in the north did and what the king in the south did, what the next king in the north did and the next king in the south did. And what you find out is that all the kings of the north are evil. They all follow pagan gods, just like Jeroboam. But every once in a while, there is a good king in the south who follows after Jehovah. And one such king is Jehoshaphat. And we read about him in chapter 22. So if you go there to chapter 22, I'll set the stage. Jehoshaphat is a good king, a follower after Jehovah. And uh, during Jehoshaphat's reign, there has been peace between the north and the south for three years. Ordinarily, there were skirmishes and wars, but Jehoshaphat's time was peace. And, and he wanted to appeal to the north to create a treaty. The king in the north at the time was Ahab, and Ahab was at war with Syria. Ahab sees this as an opportunity to get more soldiers. So Ahab says to Jehoshaphat, well, will you fight with me against Syria? And while they're having that meeting, Ahab appeals to his prophets. Now, these are the prophets of the false new religion started by Jeroboam, remember? But he has prophets there, and so he says to the prophets, will we be successful if we go to war against Syria? And the prophets say, yeah, it's going to be great, you know, go to war. And, and you know, they're, they're basically encouraging it, and Jehoshaphat is listening to this. But there is a true prophet present at the meeting. His name is Micaiah, and Micaiah says this, you can go ahead and go to battle, but if you, Ahab, come back alive, 
then I am not a true prophet. Well, Ahab doesn't want to lose face in front of the king. He doesn't want to lose the chance to enlist the king's armies and have all that extra help. And so he decides, well, I, I will go to war, but I'll wear a disguise, so I'll be protected. And so in chapter 22, verse 30, here's what the king Ahab is talking to King Jehoshaphat, and he says, The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, I will enter the battle in disguise, but you wear your royal robes. Do you see what he's asking? He's saying, listen, Jehoshaphat, we'll go to battle. You be the big old fatty target for everybody's arrows, okay? And I'll wear a disguise. Amazingly, Jehoshaphat goes, sounds like a plan. <laughs> and that's what they do. They go into battle together. But look, notice verse 34. But someone drew his bow at random and hit the king of Israel between the sections of his armor. Somebody in the middle of the battle just kind of beep like that, you know. And God guided that arrow to the king in disguise, the rebellious king, the king who is a worshiper of pagan, pagan uh, gods. And that's the lesson of the book right there. The lesson is God is watching. It doesn't matter if you disguise. It doesn't matter if you sneak around. It doesn't matter if you connive your way. God is watching. And he's looking for obedience. And obedience brings blessing. But when he sees rebellion, it brings consequence. God is watching them and he's watching us. He called this nation to be his special people, set aside and be blessed in his ways. But when the heart of the king strayed, so did the heart of the people. Solomon himself wrote these words, but didn't apply them. He wrote in Proverbs 4, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. For us, the word is this. When God looks at my heart, what does he see springing forth? Does he see obedience, which will bring his blessing and encouragement? Or does he see rebellion, which always brings consequence and suffering? He's looking to us to have the hearts that are oriented to obedience. We want to be those who walk in step with him.